Well, it is, um, it's Jubilee Sunday, and our Bible reading is about what makes a good or a bad monarch. Someone, um, after the first service this morning, um, just sort of raised an eyebrow at that slightly brave choice. Um, it's not entirely accidental that that's where we are this morning. Some planning does go into what we preach and when. But I think without one Samuel in front of us, I don't think we would have chosen this category for what makes a good or a bad king or queen. It's the, the category that we met last week, if you were with us, and the category is obedience. I think we think of kings and queens as people who give orders, not as people who take them. But in the Bible, a good ruler is one who is humble before God and who takes orders from him. And that's good for the ruler and it's good for their people. But it's not surprising, is it, that over the years, kings and dictators and presidents throughout history have not always seen it that way. Um, but with our queen, um, on a day with um, you know the bunting wall to wall down Regent Street, notice that obedience is actually what she promised to do at her coronation. And it is what she says that she's all about. And it's actually the explanation for what in our country, uh, even kind of Republicans through gritted teeth, these are the things that people most like about her, the things that people most appreciate. I've got here, um, this is Mark Green's new book. Um, He preached for us a couple of weeks ago, and as he left, he left me with this book. It's a new book on the Queen, and what he's done, he's read all of the Queen's speeches and looked for what she is telling us about her faith. Um, These are the only speeches, apparently, that she writes herself. Um, unusually they are what she wants to say, what she thinks. And Mark says that all of her secular biographers consistently ignore what she says is central to her life, which is following the commands of Jesus Christ. Um, I caught some of the coverage of the um, the service at St. Paul's Cathedral, and uh, I, I think I heard this right. I was driving at the time, but um, they kept saying, oh, we're, we're now we're singing to say thank you to the Queen. Even at one point, I think maybe they said, we are singing to the Queen, um, which I don't think is how she would see it at all, singing to say thank you to God and speaking to her God. Um, Her humility, her service ethic, her life goals, she believes that comes from her God, that she says she is personally accountable to God as her king. Um, Just listen, this is what she said in 1995 about Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. She said, it sounds so simple, yet it proves so hard to obey. Sounds so simple, yet it proves so hard to obey. That's obedience, isn't it? Simple, but hard. I guess that fits um, your week and my week this week. And that idea, that brings us wonderfully to King Saul. Uh, because the next three chapters are a tragedy. It's the story of how Saul disobeyed God. But I, I think we are going to enjoy talking about Saul together. Already, actually, after last week, um, people came up in sort of waves to talk to me about Saul after the service, and about half of them were defending him, and about half of them were accusing him. He's such a sort of real and human character. So please open up page 282, chapter 13, And we'll see Saul begin his real work as king. And this week, 
Um, I've got three headings, and they're all about a delay. So heading number one, delayed obedience. Delayed obedience, verses one to four. Uh, Saul leaves Gilgal, and he has, for the first time, a professional standing army. 2,000 with him and 1,000 with his son Jonathan. Everyone else goes home, but they're ready to be called back when they need it. And in verse 4, we are told that, uh, verse 3, verse 4, we're told Jonathan attacks a Philistine outpost. And you might think that's just a bit of news from the war. Um, there's, uh, the Philistines have invaded, they've got a garrison, it's in Jonathan's area, so of course he attacks. What's the big news? Except that the, um, the place name should sound a bit familiar to us. Uh, there's a, a spelling change, but it seems this is the same place as back in chapter 10, verse 5. So just turn back to 10, verse 5, and we'll need that for a minute or so, because there are some details there that we didn't dwell on three weeks ago when we were there. So in chapter 10, we're back when Saul was being reassured by God, and Samuel, to reassure him, gives him a series of three miracles, three signs. And of the three, the final one was the best. That's in 10 verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost, same place. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets. And verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. That's the command. And then, just because we'll need it in a second, read on to 10 verse 8. Uh, there's another instruction. After doing whatever your hand finds to do, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you. And tell you what you are to do. Okay? So miracle one, miracle two, miracle three. Then the spirit, powerfully on Saul, changed man. Now do whatever your hand finds to do. And then go to Gilgal and wait seven days for instructions. Just a window into how amazing to be king of Israel. Um, you have the sort of God-inspired uh, prophet who knows everything the enemy is doing, who knows what you should do, and God's spirit to give you all the power to be victorious and fight all your battles. So just think about the instruction that he's given. Do whatever your hand finds to do. What could that mean? Um, he's at Gibeah of God, so it's part of Israel, and there is a, a Philistine outpost, that's bad, and he has just been anointed king, and he's had not one, not two, but count them three miracles, confirming that God is on his side, and he's been empowered with the Holy Spirit. What should he do, do we think, when the job of king is fighting the battles and saving the people from the Philistines? So when we track it through, 10 verse 13... The miracles all come true, the Spirit empowers him, and he prophesies with the prophets, and then he stopped, and he went to the high place. And we think, oh, maybe that's another name for the Philistine outpost, but apparently not, because the next thing he does is go home and talk about donkeys again. It's all Saul ever seems to do, is talk about donkeys. Um, given all of the reassurance in the world and all of the power of God's Spirit, the top thing on his agenda is donkeys. Um, and he doesn't even tell his uncle about the being made king bit. 
of the last couple of days. So the question that hangs over is, okay, Saul, so when? When are you going to get round to dealing with the outpost? Um, So chapter 10, uh, Samuel makes him king again, uh, even has to go and look for him, hidden in the baggage, come and be king. Um, Will he do it then? No. No, he goes home, not donkeys this time, but oxen. Then chapter 11, well, he's busy. He's busy defeating the Ammonites, and that goes well, so they make him king again again in chapter 12. And he sorts out the standing army, sensible, we've got an army now, and we're still waiting. So when Jonathan finally attacks the outpost in Geba, Gibeah, it's a relief. Though I think we wonder why Jonathan not Saul, but at least we're back on track. Uh, We're back on God's now slightly delayed plan for rescuing the people from the Philistines through Saul. And Jonathan attacks the outpost, come back to chapter 13, uh, attacks the outpost, verse 3, and the Philistines heard about it. And so Saul does the next bit right. He engages the next bit of the plan, summons all the people, and summons them to Gilgal, just like he was told. And we think, great, we're back on the plan. Um, so we know what should happen next. Uh, 10 verse 8, go to Gilgal, wait seven days. Samuel will sacrifice, and then Samuel will tell you what to do next. That's it. Simple. Obedience is simple. Just do what you're told. And we're thinking, well, delayed obedience is better than no obedience. So this is good news. But then what happens next feels to Saul like delayed fulfillment. That's our second point, delayed fulfillment, verses 5 to 10. So Saul is back on the plan. But it seems that God's plan is to make the Philistines really, really angry. It's like kicking a wasp's nest. And they all come out to fight at once with the the top-of-the-range military hardware. Verse 5, Philistines assemble with 3,000 chariots. So think um, fighter jets or next-generation tanks. And 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And that makes Saul's army afraid. Verse 6, when they saw, they um, hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. And some of them, they go further than hiding. And they run across the Jordan and get as far away from the enemy as they can, which leaves Saul. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And Saul then has a very nasty seven days to wait. Um, Just some of his army left and thousands and thousands of heavily armored Philistines not far away. And you guess the seven days passes very slowly, don't you? And the narrator builds the picture so that we really sympathize with Saul. Um, You can imagine him, can't you? Every day kind of looking out from the camp. Is Samuel on the way? Be nice if he got here soon. Day one, nothing. Day two, Nothing. And then uh, verse 8, as the days go by and Samuel did not come to Gilgal, Saul's men began to scatter. One by one, just disappear. And finally, on day 7, Saul cracks. Uh, It's clear from verse 10 that he doesn't wait the whole day. So it's like he's waited six and a half days. That's part of the tragedy. He gets so close. Six and a half days. It's more like he gives Samuel, I'm going to give him till midday. He's not here then. He's not coming. Sort of what Saul's thinking. 
And he moves into the next stage in God's plan, as far as he understood it. So seven days at Gilgal, then sacrifices. So Saul has the sacrifices. And it takes a while to sacrifice an animal. You've got to catch it and chop it up and cook it on a fire and burn the bits and all the stuff. And it's just as he finishes that Samuel arrives. It's like Samuel kind of pops up behind a a smoking Jubilee barbecue of roast oxen or something. Here's Samuel on day seven. That's a bit awkward. And Samuel's first question is not very encouraging. Look at verse 11. What have you done? And that brings us to the, the third stage, which is delayed judgment. Verses 11 to 15. What have you done? Asks Samuel. And immediately Saul starts in with his excuses. And I think, as I read it to you, I think you will probably feel sympathy for Saul and the the difficult position that he was put in. So here's verse 11. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. It's for God. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Um, Do you feel sympathy? I think the narrator does everything possible to make Saul's disobedience sound reasonable. Um, I think we really understand why he did it. I felt compelled. It's a version of, what was I supposed to do? And the the bad consequences of obedience, they're huge. His army is disintegrating. The invader is close by. And the the scale of the disobedience is dialed right down. Um, It's it's so small. He'd, He'd promised them a sacrifice, and then God would help them, so there'd better be a sacrifice. It's in God's plan. And the the bit about wait for me, and I will then tell you what to do, they just didn't seem so big in an emergency. And then as well, there is a significant excuse, isn't that? Where were you, Samuel? Couldn't you have got here on day six? That would have been really helpful. It's your fault. And as a whole, I think this story is asking, is there wiggle room in the commands of God for a king under pressure? Yet surely... Surely you can work out a way of keeping the spirit of God's command, but adapting to the circumstances. Is partial obedience, flexible obedience, is that okay? And the answer, verse 13, is no. Verse 13, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, the command of the Lord your God gave you, and then a judgment is announced. And I think we feel that painfully. Um, Saul, he's only been king five minutes. So it's pretty devastating on him. And, And God says, if you'd been obedient, well, then God would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's going to be significant. And appointed him ruler of his people because... You have not kept the Lord's command. It's a judgment, so it means no royal sons and grandsons for Saul, no um, house of Saul and no line of Saul to reign forever. But it's delayed judgment because he goes on being king. Um, there's no actual reason to think Saul won't need some, um, some jubilee celebrations. Probably not going to make it to platinum. 
but he could be king for a while yet. So what do we think? Does it feel like Samuel and God have overreacted? You think, you know, couldn't this have been a, a learning point rather than a sacking? And at one level, the narrator is, I think, fine with us being on, on Saul's side for a bit longer. Uh, the narrator has two more chapters to go before he needs us to be convinced of this. But I think at this point, it's worth noticing why we are so sympathetic. Um, isn't it because his excuses sound so much like our excuses? Um, we can imagine being in his situation and, and wanting so very much to bend the rules of God. Uh, in fact, I think it's what most of us do a lot of the time. And we, we secretly hope that God will be okay with it. And that, um, that line of application, that was suggested by last week's chapter. So do you remember last week um, where uh, Samuel said, if both you and your king follow the Lord, it means that we are in this together with our leaders, the people and the king together. The people, they should have waited seven days without scattering. And that would have made it easier for Saul, wouldn't it? They should have obeyed God too. They should have helped Saul. It's okay, trust God, it'll all be all right. So we can use last week and this week together and just sort of run our mind over the thousand decisions that we make every day in life, in work and in friendships, Think, how often are we, we reaching for the, um, what was I supposed to do, excuse? But this week, in chapter 13, the focus is much more on the king than on the people. And so the, the primary application is, again, about understanding what kind of king we need. Um, Saul, he, he's not just a normal Christian going about his job and trying to live for Jesus. He's the king. And actually, as king, he was given just one job back in chapter 12. Obey God. Uh, if you obey God, then everything will go well for you and for the people. But if Saul messes up the obeying God bits, well, then his people are not safe and will not be rescued. And the king is no use to them at all. Um, if actually God is all you have in your locker... So if God is the only way you're going to defeat thousands of heavily armored Philistines, it doesn't actually matter if some of your army is slipping away. It's not as if, you know, big tall Saul was going to be fine as long as, you know, Jimmy and Fred stayed with him and it would all be okay, go and fight the Philistines. Always what he needed was a miracle from God. And all he has going for him is the power of God. And all he has to do is obey God. And chapters 13 to 15 are here to say that God really meant it about the obedience thing. We need a king who will obey God all of the time. It's not okay to achieve you know, kind of the right result. It's not okay if you couldn't think of what else to do. It's not okay if you were really scared. It's not okay if your friends made you. God's king needs to obey him all of the time in everything that he says. And you think if God maybe had given them a terrible king as their first king, like a Manasseh or an Ahab, then maybe we would say, oh, bad luck. Um, let's try again. Like, um, you know, maybe he was a, a rotten apple in the barrel and let's just reach in there and try again for someone else. But instead, God gives them a normal kind of king. 
It's someone who's trying to do the right thing. He's a bit clueless. He's a bit scared. He's a bit insecure. He's a lot normal. But he does not manage to obey God all of the time in everything that God says. Which leaves him facing delayed judgment and worse off in every way than he was before. So because he doesn't obey, there is no next step in the plan to defeat the Philistines that year. Verse 15, Samuel leaves him to it, and Saul is left with only 600 men against thousands and thousands of Philistines. He doesn't even have one foot soldier for every tank that the Philistines have. And so verse 17 and 18 tells us this was terrible for the whole kingdom. The Philistines raid through the whole country as if, um, as if Saul's army wasn't there at all. Disobedient king, proud king, who thought he could disobey God and still be rescued by God, that kind of king is not safe for the people. And that is how these chapters will teach us about Jesus. Um, We are not safe unless our king obeys God all the time. Um, We cannot be rescued unless our king does exactly what God says. We cannot be in relationship with God unless the king connects us to God without being a rival to God. We cannot follow God unless our king points us to obedience and sets us the example step after difficult step. And uh, we're going to say more about Jesus next week. But unlike Saul, God sent, uh, over a thousand years later, someone who did obey God, sent the king that we need. Jesus is God and man. He perfectly obeyed. So he can save us, protect us, lead us, and connect us to God. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he learned obedience even unto death, even death on a cross. So that's the example of Jesus. That's the king we really need. But um, this week particularly, I want to look specifically at what this means for church leaders. So we've said in um, previous weeks that the sharpest, closest applications here, they are to church leaders today, not to governments today. They're to the under-shepherds of the good shepherd, King Jesus. And um, the parallels are not exact But Saul's plaintive, I felt compelled, at verse 12, it has a very contemporary ring for me, particularly when it comes to the senior leaders in our denomination. So we're going to talk a little bit about bishops. And would you know, I met a bishop on the way in today who's sitting with us today. So, um, so you never, you know, whenever you talk about someone, they're there. So we're going to talk about bishops, but, um, I hope sympathetically. Um, we live, don't we? in a very pressured time for church leaders. And it's probably true globally, but it is particularly true in the West and in the older, more established denominations. Um, Church decline is now so rapid that you can draw graphs predicting um, when the last person will leave the Church of England, and it will all be over. And as well, the external pressure is increasing. Um, It's not identical, it's not quite the armies of the Philistines, um, but all of the old certainties that someone older than me in church leadership grew up with, those have gone, haven't they? So um, traditional Christian morality, that is no longer quaint and boring, it's now evil 
and to be resisted and driven out. And so I find that Saul helps me have sympathy with senior leaders in our denomination. Um, senior leaders in our denomination, they grew up in the days when the church was strong and secure, and they have been waiting and praying for God's help, uh, waiting for God to send a revival and bring people back to church. And the delay feels very, very long. And the situation is serious, and the opposition is very close and very fierce, and the congregations are afraid and are beginning to scatter. I find it very easy to understand why senior leaders feel compelled to begin adjusting what obedience means. Um, I've had diocesan bishops, not our bishop, actually not Bishop Sarah, Bishop of London, but other, other diocesan bishops say to me things like this. Um, unless we change the teaching of the Bible, people won't ever come to church again. Or um, things like, people just don't get it. When you try and tell them what the Bible says, they just think it's offensive. So the, the plan seems to be, um, let's just change what the Bible says. Just a small amount. Uh, we'll keep most of it. We're just going to you know, be a step sideways or a step ahead of God. We're sticking with his plan in general. He won't mind if we alter the details. And I think Saul helps me um, understand and have sympathy with the good intentions behind that and the terrible weight of pressure that these leaders are under. But Saul also helps me see how dangerous it is for us if we are led by people who think like that. Um, Imagine being a normal Israelite. And seeing, seeing this coming. So imagine you're a, a normal Israelite who lives in Gilgal. Uh, maybe um, you're the mother of one of the soldiers in Saul's army. Um, imagine that, um, that you know what Samuel has said to Saul. Um, you know what it means. You know that God meant it when he said that obedience is important. And now imagine her hearing Saul talking on day seven about what he'll do. Imagine her hearing Saul say, I don't think God will really mind. It's only a bit of a small change. What was I supposed to do? Christian people who understand that God is king should understand that he must be obeyed. And Christian people who understand that God is faithful, um, Michelle mentioned that, didn't she, in the interview? God is faithful. Um, This is not delayed fulfillment. Um, God keeps his promise on time. Uh, Samuel is there by the end of the seventh day, and they have, remember last week, they have hundreds of years of God always keeping his promise. We have thousands of years of God always keeping his promise. People who know that Jesus always obeyed, and that Jesus told his church to make disciples everywhere for all time, teaching them to obey everything that he commanded, and that Jesus set the example of doing that all the way to death, if necessary. Well, Christian people who know that, we should care much more than we do normally when our leaders talk about having no choice but to change the teaching of Jesus. So I felt compelled. What was I supposed to do? Our safety depends on obedient leadership. Uh, It's leadership. That's what Jesus gives us. Ultimately, he is the obedient king. But here and now, our safety as individual congregations and as whole denominations, it's what we should be terrified to do without. 
So in terms of application of, of this one for us, it's about what we pray for, what we long for in our leaders. It's about what um, behavior we encourage and honor and thank people for when we have it. It's about how we respond when um, issues of obedience come up in, in areas that are personally hard for us or painful for us. And also we should thank God for Jesus and we should long for the day when we see him and we will be in his kingdom fully. Um, I'm going to pray and I'm particularly going to pray for our senior leaders. Dear Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus as perfect king. Thank you that you have provided for us someone who always obeyed you, who always points to you, and who calls us to do the same. Thank you for his humility and for his courage. And we ask, Father, for our senior leaders, for our archbishops and bishops, for the queen herself in her leadership role, for our brother bishop here with us today. Father, we ask that you would give um, them that same humility and that same courage, that when things are difficult, when pressure is huge, a trust in your faithfulness that would enable us to obey, that they would be led by you, we would be led by them in confident obedience of our Lord and God. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus, the King for all ages, over all people. Amen. Amen.